Welcome. You've joined the Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Our show is here to help you achieve better, better love, better sex, and a better, more intimate relationship. Are you ready? Take notes and send us your questions. This is the Sexy Lifestyle. Now, here are your hosts, Carol and David. Hey, everyone. Are you ready to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny? Well, you've come to the right place because that's what the sexy lifestyle is all about. David and I are passionate about making your sex life the best it can be. We sure are. And you know, we love talking and learning about everything related to sex and sexuality, sexual health, and of course, sexual pleasure. We love diving deep into the naughty, the taboo, and the unknown. And we hope our discussions open up your dialogue about great sex because great sex matters. And we all deserve it. We sure do. So is your love life getting you down because you're finding it harder and harder to meet compatible partners? Have you noticed how technology, especially dating apps, has changed the playing field with respect to dating, love, and relationships? Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about dating, gender dynamics, and models of love. And if you want to know more about mothers, milfs, and wives, and why women have sex, then listen right to the end because the answers are found in the science of love. Oh yeah, but before we get going, we want to take a moment to tell you about our top waterproof blanket because great sex is messy sex, but nobody wants to sleep in that wet spot. So if you're fed up with having to change your sheets every time you have sex, then you need one of our top waterproof blankets. It's 100% waterproof and leakproof, and it guarantees to keep your bed and mattress dry no matter how wet it gets. From messy massage oils or silicone lubes to all sorts of sexy wetness, just throw it in the washer and dryer and it comes out looking like brand new. And you don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply and safely go to Amazon and order yours today. Search Top Waterproof Blanket, that's P-T-O-P, Waterproof Blanket. Great sex starts now. It sure does. So does today's show. You know we're Carol and David. This is The Sexy Lifestyle. And we have an uber special guest for you today. We have Dr. Wendy Walsh. She's an educator, author, and media personality, and a whole lot more, which she's going to tell us all about. Absolutely. Dr. Wendy Walsh, thank you for taking time out of your hectic day and week for being here today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. We're so excited to get started today. So why don't you tell us about how you got into the science of love? Well, you know, I like to think that most psychologists, if they're good, are wounded healers, right? We start from the place of our own wounds and try to solve the issues. And um, when I was young, I had an anxious attachment style that I was not aware of. And it led me down to terrible places, dating people who left me longing, left me with emotional pain. And I continued to go back for more. And it was only after having, you know, everybody has this big aha moment. Uh, but in my aha moment was both, I was 30 years old, both my parents had just died of cancer that year. Mm. And I was spending the first Christmas and I thought I would fill the black hole of lost love with a date to midnight mass with a playboy. And you you know, the punch, the ending already, uh-huh. he stood me up, oh. he stood me up. Okay. And so the next day I'm crying in a bathtub on Christmas day, uh, grieving over the loss of my parents, but focusing on this so-called bad boy with now I know an avoidant attachment style mm. and wondering why I couldn't make him love me. And it was only after spending seven years in therapy and seven years getting a master's and PhD in psychology that I have the answer 
-hmm. And the answer had to do with what was going on in my childhood, of course, and what led me to have an anxious attachment style. And so doing the work that I needed to do to have a secure attachment style, eventually having two kids and having a a secure attachment with them and uh, learning how to be attracted to the right kind of people, I now spend my life trying to teach people how to not re-injure themselves through their intimate relationships. Because, you know, our partners are really often surrogates for, you know, pieces from our early life. Mm -hmm. And while some people have, you know, very healthy relationships that involve great sex lives, there are some people that are re-injuring themselves through dating people that hurt them. And it seems that those people don't even realize it and they just go and do it again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So part the first step, of course, is to become aware of one's attachment style. And so I really have devoted the last few decades of my life to understanding the science of love and learning that love actually has a biological piece, a psychological piece and a social piece. Of course, the latest social piece is dating apps, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that if you can reveal the entire game board of love for people, then they can make better choices for themselves to have healthier relationships. Very cool. I wonder what the science of our love was. Uh, We didn't um, tell Wendy about this. Most of our listeners already know, but Carol's ex-husband is married to my ex-wife. Oh, interesting. And they dumped us so they could be together. Yeah, that happened 15 years ago. Interesting. Well, you certainly got back at them, didn't you? <laughs> we sure did. You know, well, when, we when, started off as really good friends. We helped each other through the divorces. And we had the best monkey sex yeah, ever. Yeah, we absolutely did. So we relied on each other as really good friends, and that started their relationship uh, with honesty and openness, and we were vulnerable with each other. And although it wasn't planned, it all happened, but it certainly turned out great, as we know now. Well, the research shows that friends' first relationships tend to be more stable Mm -hmm. and last longer. By the way, when I say last longer, I always want to catch myself because I think in our culture we have, we judge relationships really unfairly and we judge the quality of relationships based on duration. Mm. Like somehow if a relationship lasts a really long time, it is successful. Mm. And if a relationship lasts a year, it is a failed relationship. Mm. When actually Every relationship we have teaches us something and they help us grow. And sometimes a successful relationship is one that lasts three weeks and then you go, now I know why that's not good for me. I'm going to make a different choice next time. And so that's a very successful relationship in my opinion. And yet there are people who might be in 30-year relationships filled with pain and trauma and longing and conflict and arguing and sexless marriages. And we go, yay, what a successful relationship you've been together 30 years yeah. what's really what's really cool about the journey we've been on for 15 years uh we found swinging and the swinging lifestyle two years into our dating and what we've seen over the years is um you know the, the swinging lifestyle is very underground but those couples who are together for 25 or 30 years um have found a way to reinvigorate their relationship by getting into a more open relationship and, and it's not necessarily um, playing with other people or having sex with other people but it's about being more open-minded about their sexuality 
and the the couples that we see and we've become friends with are so solid and so strong um, that when they say they've been together 30 years, they might say, you know, the first 20 years were eh, eh, not so much, but the last 10 years have been fantastic because we're now talking to each other more. We're talking about our fantasies. We're talking about what we want. And if something isn't right, we can communicate with it with no, you know, judgment involved. Well, that sounds wonderful mm -hmm. that you found the community that supports you. Yeah. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And we know that um, Time Magazine named you as Person of the Year in 2017 after you, were, you spoke out about harassment at Fox News. So how important is it for women to speak up? Well, I think women, men, and everybody need to speak up. We need to have boundaries around our own bodies. We need to have boundaries around, uh, you know, our psychological safety and avoid emotional abuse. But, you know, that event was another aha moment for me. And when, you know, former news anchor Bill O'Reilly offered me a job and then immediately after that job offer invited me back to his hotel suite and I declined, that was a moment where, you know, back in the day, women didn't decline because they were too afraid of, you know, losing that opportunity or being blackballed in the industry and, for me, it's just like I found my no. And by finding my no, um, I freed myself. Now, interestingly enough, I did not have a case. I did not sue anybody. I didn't complain. I didn't tell anybody. And that very fact made me free to tell the story forever because most people who had complained about him and other employees at Fox News in the past had been offered a settlement mm. And in exchange for removing their voice mm -hmm. for life, making them sign a non-disclosure agreement. So when the New York Times dug me up three years later, um, I was happy to tell my story. It had been my favorite cocktail party conversation story. Mm -hmm. And um, who knew that I would become the voice of a story that represented potentially dozens of voiceless victims mm -hmm. from the past. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you say dozens, but I'm sure it's even more than that. Yes, we don't know because yeah. of all the violence and the non-disclosure agreements, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and you're right. It, it's, it was something that came out in the news about women, but it certainly can be um, um, any gender. It doesn't have to be only for women. It's for everybody that we should be able to control our yes or no at any time and give our consent when and it's right. We also right. should become aware of our boundaries, mm -hmm. you know? So here's the thing is that people think like someone else should respect their boundaries. And I'm like, you know, it's really not their job to keep you safe. It's your job to keep mm -hmm. you safe. Mm -hmm. So you can't put boundaries on anybody else. You can only put boundaries on yourself. So you can only change your reaction to them and give them a consequence. You can't like be begging them to respect your boundaries. Mm -hmm. You're the one who needs to respect your boundaries. And you're right. First know what your boundaries are and then speak up when yeah. they are being violated. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Wow. I mean, like you mentioned the swinging lifestyle and I'm of three minds there. One is, you know, it's understandable that because I'm an evolutionary psychologist because our life expectancies are just so darn long that people are finding all kinds of creative ways to keep monogamy alive. And sometimes that may be mean, mean inviting other partners in. But there's something else going on sociologically in our culture, and that is we are seeing the rise of women. We are seeing an oversupply of educated women. The feminization of college campuses has been a 
pretty open secret for the last 15 years. Uh, we are seeing for every two men that graduate, sorry, for every one man that graduates college, there are three women. And even in the bastions of male dominated uh, academia, like um, medicine and business and law, we're seeing 50% women there. And so what happens is when women graduate from college and they're making good money, um, they often are, you know, they don't want to date down yeah. in their mind. Yeah. They have the patriarchy inside them as well. And they think that a man is less than if he has less education or less money. So what that means is there's a shrinking pool of what they would determine eligible men to mate with. So we're seeing an oversupply of educated women in the mating marketplace they have a crunch with this fertility window. And for the first time in our human history, men are starting to call the shot sexually. And they're saying, hey, if you don't want to put out, I'll move on to somebody else. If you don't want to s sign up for this situationship where we can have some ethical non-monogamy and I can have five women, then uh, sorry, move along, babe. And so there is a group of women, and I'm not talking about the monogamous couples who are very solid and emotionally sound and talk about feelings and want to add some excitement to their monogamy. Um, by engaging in a swinging lifestyle, there are a group of insecure women who sense this insecurity and this not enough partners who are consenting to sexual relationships that they would have never consented to decades ago because of the mating marketplace. That's I've also, I did, I did an episode on my podcast, Mating Matters, um, about polyamory that I call Polly want a cracker. And, uh, and one of the women I interviewed, because I, I interview scientists, but then I try to bring real people on to sort of bring the science to life. And one of the women I interviewed who said, oh, well, I, I met a man and he's great. He told me he's polyamorous and whatever. And, and I said, oh, so you had sex with he and his wife? Oh, no, I never met his wife. And I go, oh, so you're sure she consented? Well, he told me she did. And, you know, and I'm like, you know, that's just a man having an affair. You know that, right? Could, He's just giving it to a friend okay, <laughs> language. Yeah. <to> it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think that people will use these umbrella terms sometimes to manipulate others rather than being this open, conscious, authentic dialogue. Yeah. And I think that the women that you're talking about who maybe are, I'm going to say, uh, going along with it because they don't want to lose this wonderful guy who happens yeah. to be smart yeah. and he's nice, etc. Um, yeah. But what we're seeing a lot in this, in the, um, you know, in the lifestyle, in the swinging lifestyle is that women are calling the shots themselves saying, I am I'm, I'm not fed up with you, but I really would like to try somebody new. I want you still to be my husband, but I want to have some variety in bed. And she's actually speaking out. And very often the husbands are, yay, great, let's try new things. And so um, we see a lot of women empowered by this the swinging lifestyle. Well, women drive the swinging lifestyle. Yeah. I think women drive all sexual decisions, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I agree. Mm -hmm. And this polyamory <laughs> thing, I think you're right. If, if some people don't really understand what it is. And we uh, we actually interviewed somebody who was in a polyamorous relationship. And I felt all along that she wasn't really into it because she wasn't sure if she was loved as much as the other um, partner, the the other 
mm-hmm. I guess, female wife. I don't know if they right. were married. Love interest. The love interest. And I think she felt insecure about it. And like, I'm thinking to myself, I would too. Like, I love being in the swinging lifestyle where I get to have sex with other people. But I go home with my husband, who I know loves me very much and takes care of me and does all the things that we do. We do that to get together. But uh, when you're in that polyamorous relationship, it is hard to know if you are loved as much as and it is a place ripe with reliving attachment trauma. Oh, there you go. Right? So if you have an anxious attachment style, it means your model for love is really about longing mm. and loss. And love to you isn't love unless you're longing and feeling abandoned and lost. So that you will gravitate either to long distance relationships, relationships with playboys who cheat on you, or relationships with uh, you know, you have to share your mate with somebody else mm-hmm. because so that you can have that model for love. There's no one right way to be a human being. And I am certainly far from the moral authority, but I, I do think we all need to understand our psyche and it breaks my heart when I see people re-injuring themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned it earlier about evolutionary psychology. Tell us a little bit about what that is. So it is the answer to every <laughs> everything in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, I specialize in the science of human mating strategy. So we are here today because our ancestors um, succeeded in what we call sexual selection. You see, when Darwin came up with his theories and he talked about natural selection, we've all heard the term survival of the fittest. It meant that the person who could both fend off diseases, fend off predators, be smart enough to hunt and forage and find the protein that they needed, and also maybe line their caves with beautiful furs and, oh, invent fire to keep them warm. That person actually, their descendants do not exist today unless they also figured out how to attract a mate, keep a mate, and nurture offspring. Mm-hmm. That is sexual selection. So Darwin was always confused by the peacock's tail. And he looked at it and said, this doesn't make sense with my theory of natural selection. Because, first of all, a peacock's tail is more than one-third of its body weight. It is a burden. It makes the peacock very vulnerable to predators. In order for a peacock to survive, he has to find that much, that many more calories in order to sustain this beautiful uh, tail. But why does it exist? It exists for only one reason, because peahens thought it was hot. And as a result, enough peahens chose peacocks with beautiful tails that their sons went on to bear those beautiful tails All the peacocks with the ugly tails, they fell out of evolution's chain a long time ago. And so Darwin didn't understand this, that actually it is female choice and female selection that shapes the entire species. And so this is why I study human mating strategy, which involves learning how to compete against people of the same sex for great mates, learning how to attract mates learning how to retain mates and protect them from mate poachers, Mm -hmm. learning how to expel mates if it hurts your lifestyle, and then learning how to enter the mating marketplace again to select another mate. And that is the most highly intelligent human uh, need for survival. Well, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, the way you explained it, it makes absolute sense. So it's the women who are picking the mates Every yeah. time. 
hundred percent. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And, and so many women today don't realize that they have a hundred percent control oh. because remember we have a lopsided mating marketplace because we have an oversupply of successful women who will not in their minds date down. You know, my, what I tell women all the time is ladies, your idea of a power guy might just be a guy who can power a stroller. <laughs> right. If you want your genes to stay in evolution's chain and you're going to be a hard driving career chick who's working 60 hours a week, why do you need an al- another alpha male who's doing the same thing? Right. Who's going to raise these kids? Do you want healthy kids to stay in evolution's chain? I'm not saying gender roles should be reversed. I'm saying gender roles should be evaluated and we should take gender out of it and literally say, look, what is a relationship? A relationship is an exchange of care. That care can take so many forms. It can be financial care. It can be sexual care. It can be domestic responsibility care. It can be emotional care. It can be instrumental care when someone is sick. It can be all kinds of care. And when you look at anybody's relationship from the outside, you might go, that exchange of care seems so unfair, but it's not to them. Right. They realize right. that that works and there's a lot of stuff you don't see. No. And so I think women have ingested as much patriarchy as men have, and they need to make choices that make more sense for their lifestyles now. And do you think that's actually happening? Many women who are succeeding. I mean, even Sheryl Sandberg, the Facebook VP, when she wrote her big uh, lean in biography a while ago, has said the most important business choice that a woman can make is her choice of domestic partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting enough, sadly, her husband died soon after that, and she became the most famous single mother in America, or the richest single mother in America. And now she had to figure out how to really do it. Look, our culture does not have enough social supports for single parents yet. The research is still clear that children of single parents, and I was a single parent for 15 years, children of single parents have um, you know, worst health, their mothers have worse mental health and physical health, they have poor academic achievement, um, they're more likely to get into at-risk behavior earlier. We know that traditional monogamy is still one of the best nests we have for kids. Mm-hmm. When we finally move to better progressive socialism that provides better safety nets for parents of all genders, then we will be more free as human beings. Because what we evolved, we evolved to be a tribe of cooperative breeders. And so don't think any parent parents alone. They're parenting with teachers, with coaches, with therapists, with babysitters. It is a village, but we still don't have advantages for single parents yet. And do you feel that your par- that your children um, uh, were disadvantaged because you were a single mom for 15 years? I think that what I had to put in to them, I had 100% custody and $0 child support, don't ask why, affected my own health. Mm, Uh, If you could see the army of pharmaceuticals I'm looking at right now, (laughs) you know (laughs) what I'm going through. And I did everything a single mother could do to put her children first. And the number one thing I did is I didn't introduce a romantic relationship because I knew that I couldn't give to a man and also have my children survive Mm -hmm. and do as well as they did. Um, And I won the single mother lottery. My daughter just graduated from Harvard. (laughs) Every mother of a Harvard grad says has to get that in right away. (laughs) Congratulations, by the way. That's awesome. But the price was 
that I put my sexuality underground. I mean, the good news is, let's get into why women have sex. People do not understand female sexuality. They take a male model of sexuality, lay it over top of a woman and say, you should get a hard on whenever you want. You need your pipes clean, don't you? No, that's you, dude. Yeah, yeah. Our sexual response system is a responsive system. So what happens with women is, many women, is unlike men who, you know, whoever you are, if you're a dude who knows you're, that, you know, Kinsey reported on this back in the 40s and 50s. He said living right next door to each other could be one man who needs sex every single day. And right next to him is a perfectly healthy male who needs sex once a month. And there's everything in between, right? And there's even asexual people, right? And, but women, on the other hand, tend to be responsive sexually when they meet a mate that interests them. So the rest of the time, their sexuality goes underground. That's why single women are less likely to replace a mate with, say, pornography uh, because, and masturbation because their, their sexuality just kind of goes underground. And then it all revs up again when they meet a mate they're interested in. And a lot of people don't understand that about female sexuality. Most men don't understand that, that's for sure. No, and women don't understand it themselves. I mean, I've had men used to say to me, how come you didn't date for all that time? Like, are you frigid? Like, what's wrong with you? And did you masturbate? Did you watch porn? I'm like, no, no, no. But now that I'm looking at you, I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Now the response, the sexual response enlivens went at the right time and place. That's a survival instinct of women. Yeah, it's almost like turned off until you need it to be turned on. Like we know how to control it. If you don't have a partner who's there at the ready, then you don't necessarily turn it on right then and there unless you're looking at porn or you are masturbating because you want to, but you don't have to. Right. And, and, And also at the end of a relationship, gentlemen, you don't understand. Once we have closed that emotional window on you, mm-hmm. you can court us all you want. Mm-hmm. You can try to get us back. You can take us to therapy. You could suddenly go into a honeymoon phase. But we have shut that window. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A lot of guys have seen that as well. Yeah, they're like, I was blindsided by divorce. You didn't see how unhappy she was for 10 years? <laughs> and then she shut the window. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. For sure. Of course he did, but he, he denied it as well as, I guess she probably denied okay. it too. We're just going to take a second to remind everybody that uh, we are Carol and David. This is The Sexy Lifestyle. We're having an amazing discussion with relationship expert, Dr. Wendy Walsh. Stay right there. We'll be right back. All right. So here's some exciting news. We are so excited to announce our new partnership with Topless Travel. Topless Travel has been around for many years and puts on the most sexy, fun, and erotic events at some of the world's sexiest venues, from the Bliss Cruises to Desire in Cancun and Hedonism in Jamaica Topless Travel offers a multitude of new and exciting adventures to stimulate all your desires. We'll have lots more to tell you in our upcoming shows, so stay tuned. For more information about all their open-minded events, simply go to thesexylifestyle.com and book the sexiest vacation ever. All right, we're back. This is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and we're going to get back to this amazing show we're having with Dr. Wendy Walsh. Why don't we get into a little bit about one of the books she wrote, which was the... Love Detox. The 30-Day Love Detox. Yes. Yes. Well, it was based on one study I read that showed that if you have sex within 30 days of meeting somebody, you have about a 90% chance of being broken up within one year. But interesting enough, delaying the onset of first sex in a new relationship actually increases the chances that you'll be together. If you wait only 90 days, 
you have a one in four chance at the end of a year that you will be together. And I wanted to know about the science of this. Why is this that friends first relationships tend to be more solid? And the truth is, the skills that you need to have to have a short-term relationship are very different than the skills you need to have a long-term relationship. To have a short-term relationship, you need to be fit and fun. To have a long-term relationship, you have to have good conflict resolution skills. You have to have good sense of self, good communication style. And that's the stuff that's developed during the friendship phase. I also learned that <clears throat> when people start hooking up early in a relationship and do not, it kind of, it's almost too much intimacy for the brain to take. So it kind of cathects or cuts off the emotional intimacy because it's just too much all at once. And so basically the book is for single women, you know, I wanted to name it something like love 2.0, finding love in a high supply sexual economy. You know, the price of sex has dropped dramatically in the last 40 years. In 1950, the price of sex was six months of courtship and an altar. And that's the average length from meet until marriage in 1950, six months, because that's the only way to get sex in 1950. Mm. So it was six months of pursuing somebody and a wedding. That was the price of sex. In the 1980s, the price of sex became three dates. Remember the three date rule? They don't put out on the third date. Oh, then mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. Today, the price of sex has dropped to the barrel bottom price of one well-worded text. <laughs> and it might not, might not even be that creative. It might be, are you up? Right? And so how do people, and, and always a mating marketplace is filled with people who want short-term relationships and people who want long-term relationships. And the best way to get a short-term relationship is to pretend to be somebody who wants a long-term relationship. And so for many women in their fertility window, when remember, we have a fertility window that men just don't have. And as much as women are running around spending all of their after-tax money freezing eggs, <laughs> we, have yet to, we have yet to see the developmental disabilities of kindergarten classrooms filled with thought-out eggs. Right. Yeah. We don't know yeah. what this is going to look like in our culture later. So as a result, if a woman wants to reproduce, and I want to stop here and say 20% of humans do not biologically procreate, and that is from the history of our species, because alloparents were also needed as caregivers. Mm. But if you're one of the 80% of women who wants to reproduce, you've got to get a guy to commit and invest in those early years of pregnancy and nursing, those very vulnerable years to women where it's hard to make a lot of money. Um, and so in order to do that, they've got to select very carefully in the early stages of dating. So the publisher named my book, The 30 Day Love Detox. I hate the title because it sounds like you're getting over a breakup, mm. but it's really about detoxing from the hookup culture and spending time assessing a mate in the early stages and looking for signs of whether there is reciprocity and whether they are really a legitimate potential long-term mate. No judgment against short-term relationships. No judgment against, hook, against hookups. We all need one once in a while. But my demographic are women wanting to have families. No religion, no morals, just science. Now, are these women consciously making these decisions, or is this hardwired in our brains to make all of these connections with every man um, 
or a partner that we meet. I knew you were smart. That's the best question you could have ever asked. Of course, most of it is unconscious. Because what I do is I try to make the unconscious conscious. So back in our anthropological past, during those very vulnerable years of nursing and pregnancy and raising toddlers, we needed men. We needed them to bring us back protein. We needed them to protect us from predators. So like the peahen who chose the male with the beautiful tail, we tended to choose high testosterone men. Mm -hmm. They exhibited themselves. So in utero, if a baby is exposed to higher levels of testosterone, their vocal cords become very long. So they tend to have deeper voices. They tend to have more muscles. Um, they tend to be more aggressive. Um, however, we're now learning about how high testosterone men is they have trouble falling in love, staying in love. They tend to cheat more mm -hmm. and they tend to have more domestic violence. <laughs> so that's the aggression gone awry. We don't really need it so much now. Right. And so today, with women surging ahead with careers and education, maybe the guy they need is not that high testosterone guy. Maybe there's something else that they need. And so we're at this kind of always at a crossroads because evolution means that we're always changing and adapting to environment, right? Unconsciously, women are, women are choosing hot men for their sexual prowess, for their ability to, you know, carry sperm, give them strong sons, right? But we have a number of mating systems that have been successful. Men have as often as used their muscles have used their brains and used their kindness. That's why in the same lifespan, we can have a Bill Gates who has no problem reproducing and we can have a, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, <laughs> right? <laughs> a high testosterone man and a lower testosterone man who can use different mating strategies. And so, yes, women unconsciously are sometimes choosing men that aren't exactly what they need for their survival and for their lifestyle. And is that because they don't know this attachment theory or the issues that they have? Okay, so that's a whole, let's add another layer on okay. it. So that's evolution, right? That's just any woman of any childhood of anything is more likely if you line up a bunch of men and say you get to sex with, have sex with anyone tonight, which you pick in, they're going to pick the taller, deep voiced, hairier, bigger muscle guy. That's okay. just boom, done, right? Okay. Now let's talk about psychology. Remember I said science of love is biological psychological and social. So now let's talk about psychology. So in our individual lifespans right now, during the first three years of life, our, and especially in the first year when our brain triples in size, we form a kind of model for love inside our head that says, this is what love is. This is what it should be feeling like. And that love is based partly on genetic predisposition. Some babies come into the world needing a lot of closeness. They have a lot of anxiety. They need touch. They need care. Others are a little more independent. They feel easily smothered. But that gene, those genes interact with the environment, which are our primary caregivers. So if you're a child from a parent who gave very inconsistent parenting, was sometimes loving, sometimes disappeared, maybe the child of a parent who suffered from alcoholism, where there was good mommy and bad mommy all in the same person, or good daddy, bad daddy, right? Um, in my case, my dad was in the Navy, and he was gone in very inconsistent patterns. The ship would be away for a few weeks and then back for a month and then gone for a few months and back for a few days and gone for a week. And so my baby brain couldn't make sense of when this protective loving man was there. So didn't I love those playboys who would come and go and dash mm. around and mm. that, that feeling was familiar to me. Mm. So even if your model of love 
is filled with criticism, longing, abuse, a big black hole where a human should be, emptiness, you will gravitate unconsciously to people who will provide that to you because that's what you know. That's what is familiar to you. So the art of healing attachment injuries is exposing and revealing to yourself your own attachment style and making different choices, often uncomfortable choices. Mm -hmm. For instance, the boyfriend I have now is his, I, I don't like that book, Love Language, but okay, it's not psychological, it's not scientific, okay. But everyone understands it. So he said to me early on, we were doing something and I watched him tidying up in my house and folding laundry and even my underwear. And I said to him, stop, stop. Cause I had this patriarchal idea in my head that real men don't fold women's G strings in their, in their downtime. And he said to me, you gotta be used to it. My love language is acts of service. And so I stopped to respect that. Now that we're into our relationship, I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe how easy life is when somebody does 50% of the work. Yeah, I'm used to being a strong, independent woman who does 100% of everything and serves a man and serves my kids and serves my audience and serves my employers. And to be able to sit back and finish my glass of wine after dinner and watch him do the dishes, I'm telling you, that turns me on. <laughs> and why not? I had, to, I had to change my attachment style to put that into my arousal system. Now, here's where attachment theory gets fascinating. So not only do we have this model for love in our heads, but the way we get lured into those people who will treat us just as we need, and my fingers are making quotation marks mm -hmm. when I say need, mm -hmm. is through our sexual response system. And so if you have, for instance, an anxious attachment style, you're going to always choose the avoidant man. And you're going to be so sexually turned on by him. And when you meet that nice guy who can actually be kind to you, you're going to go, hear the, hear the words women use. Oh, he's too nice. Or I like a challenge. Or I don't know. Like, he seems like maybe he's insecure because he's being kind to me. Uh, maybe you're insecure because you need a guy to be mean to you. Mm. Right? So that's how attachment works and plays out in our intimate relationship. An avoidant person, by the way, will be atta attra sexually attracted to the anxious person who drives him crazy with the phone calls and the texts and where are you and looks into their DMs to see if there's a mate poacher who's always counting how many minutes between the last text. This woman drives him crazy. By the way, I'm putting gender on it and I shouldn't because there are avoidant women and yeah. there are anxious men. Sure. Too, okay. Sure. Um, but this is familiar to him. This was the all smothering, dominating single mother who never let him make a decision on his own. And so he's sexually aroused by this, even though he's deeply unhappy mm. and he and, doesn't know how to. And you're saying system. that you can actually change your attachment theory as you did. Yeah. And what you're telling everybody out here that you need to figure it out and go with the, the one that suits you better. Okay. I want to be clear. Nobody needs to do anything in their life. I'm not about, all about shoulds. I'm about, here's the game board of love. Would you like to read the instruction manual? Mm -hmm. Now go make some good decisions for gotcha. yourself. Right. Gotcha. Um, Yes. So according to science, there are three ways to heal an attachment injury. Um, one is if you are lucky enough, whether you have an anxious or avoidant attachment style to meet somebody who has a secure attachment style. Now, why would you be attracted to that person? If Dr. Wendy just said you're not attracted to that person, but maybe they look really good on paper. That's where the social piece comes in. Maybe this person with the secure attachment style happens to be 
tall, deep void muscle. Maybe this person with the secure attachment style makes good money. Your parents like him. Uh, he has a great social circle. So you have all kinds of reasons for becoming aroused by him. And then you get into this relationship and he's not behaving like an avoidant person. And this doesn't feel right to you. And so you try to become, this is what people do literally unconsciously, a drama queen. You create problems that aren't there to try to push him away because you need him to go away and give you space so you can chase after him. But the secure person stands there solid and goes, oh, you're really cute when you do that. That is so funny. Okay, well, I'm here when you settle down. I don't think I did anything wrong here, but okay. And then eventually the anxious person that's spinning out of control starts to calm down and say it's safe to love. Now the avoidant person will be running off and playing all kinds of crazy mind games and not calling. I'm sorry, my phone was broken. Yeah, I didn't call you for two months, whatever. <laughs> and the queer person goes, oh, all right, you're funny. Well, I'm here when you want to come back. And eventually the avoidant person goes, wait a minute, there's nothing to fear. They're not engulfing me. They're not smothering me. It's safe to get near. Unfortunately, the secure person is more likely to just move away from yeah. somebody who has an insecure attachment style and find somebody who's secure. But sometimes, just because of dating apps and on paper, they find each other. So that's one relationship that can heal attachment injuries. The other is the parent-child relationship. When a parent says to a baby, don't worry, honey, daddy's here. Daddy's coming home soon. Don't worry, baby, mommy loves you. It's okay, I'm here for you. When a parent says that, and that parent has attachment injuries themselves, there's another brain listening. It's their own brain. So they actually rewire their own neurochemistry by self-consoling through being a good parent. Now, unfortunately, too many people unaware of their own attachment trauma just repeat the pattern. Their parents were avoidant with them. They became avoidant. They're avoidant with their kids. Um, but sometimes they go, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do it for my kids' sake, and I'm going to learn to be close and love them. And then the third relationship, according to science, that can heal an attachment injury is the therapist-patient dyad. Mm -hmm. And no matter what kind of education your therapist has, whether it's a master's or PhD, whether it's in psych, whether they're a psychiatrist, whether they're a spiritual counselor, marriage and family counselor, who cares? What matters is the consistency of the therapeutic frame. That's why therapists say, they sound so strict and regimented. You must meet on Friday at 10 a.m. No, you can't change around your appointment time. No, you can't leave early. No, you can't. Blah, blah. Because that is an angry baby coming to therapy. And the therapeutic frame is the solid mother who says, I'm here for you exactly at the time I promise to be here for you. And over time, the patient heals because of the consistency of that relationship. Wow, that is very, very, very interesting. All those three types that you can heal. And I'm sitting here in awe. I know, right? Me too. And just <laughs> listening to it, it sounds so obvious. Um, we're just going to take a quick break on that note. Tell every, remind everybody that we are Carol and David. This is the sexy lifestyle. We're having its discussion. This so 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 interesting um, with um, relationship expert Dr. Wendy Walsh. And coming up next is our favorite segment, Great Sex Matters. But first, another shout out to one of our show sponsors. So stay right there. Absolutely. All right. Let's tell everybody about Hito 2 in Jamaica. You know, it's one of our favorite places to hang naked on the beach, and it is the sexiest place on earth where you can be as mild or as wild as you like. 
and we are uber excited. I like using that word, uber. We're uber excited to tell you all about their 40th anniversary celebration happening October 30th to November 6th. So come join us for a week um, down there on Seven Mile Beach in Negril. For more information about this trip or anything else sexy, go to thesexylifestyle.com and click on the Hedo link to book the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever. And just a reminder that if you are looking for an open-minded online community to find compatible people and events in your area, go to sdc.com and use promo code 30314 to get your first month free. Alrighty, we're back. This is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David. And as we mentioned earlier, it's time for our favorite part of the show where we get to talk about great sex because... Well, great sex matters and we all deserve it. We sure do. So, you know, Wendy, earlier you were talking about, you know, how dating has changed from the 50s to the 60s to the 70s and 80s, 90s and um, all the way up to today where it's just one text. Um, I know you have an opinion on dating apps and how dating is different for men and women today. Let's go into that a little bit. Well, I don't have an opinion. I have science and research. There you go. Even better. So, here's... Um, what dating apps do to our brain. They kind of biohack our brain. You got to remember in our anthropological past, during the course of our entire lifespan, we probably never laid eyes on more than 150 humans. And the 30 or 35 or so that we roamed around with in our tribe were mostly related to us. So when a new mate that was not biologically related to us wandered into our encampment, we sat up and took notice. We smelled that delicious new hunter who came over from another tribe and the girls lined up, right? It was a really big deal. So we have a response system to get very excited to people who aren't our brothers and sisters or mothers or uncles. Now what dating apps do is they biohack that system because they present what I call a vast buffet of junk food sex. <laughs> So have you ever gone to a buffet in Vegas and chosen one perfect entree? No. no you never. Make never. A never. So we call this the paradox of choice. The more choice a human being is given, the less likely they are to make a choice. And if they do make a choice, the less likely they are to really value that choice. They're always thinking about the fish that got away, the bigger, better deal. What if I clicked on that other mate? And so while dating apps have their really wonderful, they do really wonderful things, you have to use them in a specific way for them to be successful for you. And the wonderful things they do is they help connect people from minority communities, whether your minority community has to do with your gender, whether it has to do with your sexual orientation, whether it has to do with your race, whether it has to do with your religion, there you can find a mate that matches you. Because, and especially for people that live in small rural towns and they want to reach out to people in big cities because um, they may be LGBTQ or they may be in a uh, racial minority, an ethnic minority in that town, and there aren't mates that they would want that they happen to be attracted to. Um, not that there's a problem with interracial dating. I just, you know, there's some people who like to date, you know, like, likes, like. So, um, so dating apps are wonderful for that. Really wonderful. Where they fail is when they hijack your brain and create this negative feedback loop of paradox of choice. 
where you get addicted to the app instead of addicted to the person that you're hoping to meet. And so here's my little trick for how to beat the biohacking. When you match with people on an app, only allow, I mean, stop using the app once you've matched with two, just two. So you're just comparing one to another. It's like a computer, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, that's it. And very quickly get off the app and get to voice. You know, as podcasters, that the voice is really the window to the soul. It's not the eye, it's Mm -hmm. the voice. And you can tell a lot from the voice. And so as the longer you're texting with somebody on an app or even on a phone, just texting, the more you're building up your fantasy of who this person is, but it's not reality. So very quickly, you have got your two people, get on the phone, have a phone conversation with them. Ladies, if you're afraid to give up your phone number, get a Google phone, learn how to block afterwards. Who cares, right? Within three or four texts, get on the phone. Then if you like what you hear, well, you have two choices because you got your zero one on and off. So you, you hear the person's voice and you go, I don't want to go out on a date with that person. So then you make sure that you treat them exactly as you would like to be treated and you do not ghost them. Yeah. So after that phone call, you wait a few hours or a day and you send them a lovely little text, either through the app or through the phone, where you say, what a pleasure to make your acquaintance. That was a delightful phone call. I don't think romance is in the cards for us but I'll keep you in mind for a friend. Good luck at your daughter's wedding or whatever, whatever they said on the phone. And you send them off. Nobody is going to write back and say, you asshole, how dare you reject me? Because you do it sweetly. You make a little communication sandwich there. Starts with a layer of love, backs up with a layer of love with something hard to chew on in the middle, right? (laughs) And then you get rid of that person quickly and you move to your other one and you move to the phone call. Now, if you like what you hear, You move not to a date, you move to a drive-by date. Drive-by dates are 20-minute coffees. That's where you say to the person, hey, you know, I'm really busy on Tuesday, but what part of town are you going to, you know what, I'm going to be in that part of town, but just for a few minutes, I'm between meetings. Can we just stop and grab a cup of quick coffee? That way, you reduce all the pressure about who's paying and what's happening, and then you get your eyeballs on them, right? Because how someone sounds is one thing. But now you need to smell their pheromones and you need to see their physique. And so you got 20 minutes to do that. And any person can get through a polite 20 minutes with somebody who's a bad mate for them. And then at the end you leave. If you don't like it, you do that canned text. I I would cut and paste my text. I would just cut and paste, cut and paste. Because the process of finding a great mate is a process of eliminating most mates. Mm. And so you shouldn't think of it as a process of finding, but it should be a process of discarding. And you have to get good at discarding politely. And so then you go back to the, the pool again and you do one, two, one, two. And then you don't get trapped into the paradox of choice of texting with five or 10 people. I know men who have six dates every weekend. Wow. They have a breakfast date, a lunch date, an evening date. And they can't, their eyes are spinning. They could never make a decision. And Wendy, is it different for men and women um, dating online? Well, yeah, because what men do, so so the crazy thing is what women do when they, gentlemen, please listen closely. This is very important. I don't care what pictures you have up there. We read the words. And if you have a profile up there with no words, you are immediately swiped away. Goodbye. You're gone because you're telling nothings about us, nothing about yourself, nothing, nothing, nothing. So gentlemen, don't put a picture of you holding a fish. 
Don't put a picture that's a selfie in the bathroom mirror with a toilet seat up behind you. You see, we have a very low disgust threshold. You have a high disgust threshold. That's why you're happy to have sex in airplane bathrooms. We would need to disinfect it first. Okay. We have problems with germs because we had to keep newborn babies alive in germ-infested jungles in our past. So if you have an open toilet seat up behind you, all we're thinking is that there's poop on your body. So I don't care how what your APAC looks like. So um, gentlemen, keep the pictures simple. If you're over 40, please keep your shirt on. Just keep your shirt on because we're swiping young guys too. And they're all mishmashed together. So we see a guy who's totally young and hot with that eight pack. And then we swipe on you and sure you have a nice tummy for a 45 year old, but you don't compare to a 28 year old. So stop it. Put a shirt on if you're over 40. Okay. Then write something about yourself. Don't say I'm funny. Tell us a joke. Don't say I'm smart. Write something cerebral. Tell us a story about your life because we don't, we're less visually wired than you would think, except for eliminating because of the disgust thing. We want to read the words. Now, men, on the other hand, it's all about the pictures, ladies. They barely even read what you wrote. They can't even remember what you wrote. They are swiping those pictures. But the research shows, and this is research on dating app users by the Kinsey Institute, recent research, men don't like Photoshopped pictures. They don't like pictures with too much perfect hair and makeup because that's not who you are in real life. And then they feel like they've been um, tricked, right? So you need to put the no makeup shot up there, ladies. You need to put a shot of you in your natural habitat looking very natural. Uh, The best compliment I used to get on dates when I was on dating apps looking for my boyfriend, 100% of the time, they would sit down and go, wow, you're the first person I ever met on a dating app who's hotter in person. Wow, that's cool. Love that. And I would say, thank you. Because I knew if they were going to like my shitty pictures, imagine when I showed up looking great. Mm Love yeah, it. Absolutely. Love it. So let's let's move on for a second. Um, you mentioned earlier you have your own podcast, which is called Mating Matters. And I went through a whole bunch of your episodes. And one that popped out was the one about mothers, milfs, and wives. How did that show go about? What did you guys talk about? Well, we're looking at female mating strategies and female reproductive strategies. I want to warn everybody that human mating is not for the faint of heart. It can often be cruel and torturous. And if men are wired sometimes, not all men, we have lots of monogamous men out there, but if men are more wired than women to spread their seed, because let's face it, sex is a pretty high risk hobby for women compared to men. So, you know, if if a guy has a bad hookup, that's all he has is a bad hookup. But a woman risks um, exposing her eggs and bloodstream to who know what, who knows what, right? because of the high amount of oxytocin that's released in women's bodies during female orgasm, women are more likely to fall in love. Because of our unique biology, women are more likely to contract an STD. And because of our patriarchy, women are more likely to contract an 18-year case of parenthood. (laughs) So as a result, women need to be more cautious and more selective and always have been historically. So If men are more wired to spread their seed because sex is a lower risk hobby, then you're going to find, and the research supports me, that there's more infidelity, 
by men than women still, as much as men are always, but my wife cheated on me. Yeah, I'm sure she did. That's anecdotal evidence. It's not the <laughs> not what the research says, okay? There are a few that do that. Um, and as a result, women make sometimes some really interesting reproductive choices. Like for instance, some women get resources from one man and genes from another. The pool boy effect, mm. right? They'll marry a rich man and then the trainer, massage therapist, pool boy can provide the genes. Mm -hmm. They're doing it unconsciously, by the way. They're marching through life going, well, he's hot. I don't know. It just happened. <laughs> but this is actually an evolved female mating strategy. Some women um, go after what I call sexy money because historically they needed resource to help support their offspring. So Women have so many reproductive choices. They can choose to become alloparents and help as the nice auntie in their, with their brothers and sisters' kids. They could be the greatest auntie in the world because their nieces and nephews are also carrying their genes. Mm -hmm. So that still keeps their genes in play. They can marry and decide to expel a mate if he's not providing for them and their offspring. If they think their chances to enter the mating marketplace are better, you know, divorce takes place. You guys know you've been through divorce. Uh, two to five years before divorce ever is announced or talked about. And during that two to five years, what are men doing? They're mostly hiding money in their brother's names and in offshore accounts. And what are women doing? They're getting into shape and getting plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. Both these things are necessary to enter the mating marketplace again. Uh, so women have all kinds of mating strategies that they use and men have their own mating strategies, and this is where the conflict of the sexes comes in. So interesting. Wow, yeah, absolutely. So so now we're talking about dating, we're talking about sex, we're talking about the finally meeting someone. Yeah. And earlier we were talking about monogamy. Is it really something natural? Are we, as people, meant to be together forever? Well, forever has, the length of forever has changed is the difference. It has. So. Um, we have the widest range of sexual behavior of any primate species. And the way that anthropologists look at how much um, promiscuity or monogamy exists in a species is they look at the scrotum size, the amount of testosterone, relative to body weight. So at one end of the scale, you've got chimpanzees, highly promiscuous, very violent. If they see a nursing mother and they want to get her knocked up, the first thing they do is kill that baby. Ugh. Famous for infanticide. Huge gonads, big balls, relatively small body. Mm. At the other end of the scale, you've got orangutans, teeny little chestnuts, big hulking bodies, very monogamous, very paternalistic. And where do you think human beings lie on the scale? It's got to be somewhere in the middle. Well... You haven't had enough partners yet. We have it all. We have big bald men and we have small bald men and we have everything in between. <laughs> we have the widest range of sexual behavior of any primate species. And we also have the widest range of paternal investment. So at one end of the scale, a guy's only investment in his kids is a teaspoon of sperm. And at the other end of the scale, a guy's investment in his kids, you see this baby-wearing, softball-throwing, carpool-driving, doting dad. And we have everything in between. Now, the problem for women is that 
They choose the high testosterone man because of his sperm mobility and his excitement to have sex with. But then he turns out to be a really lousy father. Surprise, surprise, right? So we actually have two major mating systems. We have the monogamous male and we have the one who likes lots of extra pair bonds. I want to ask, do a little math with you. So let's assume the monogamous male and anthropologists have always scratched their heads like, why do we have monogamy? And almost a 50% of our species are pretty monogamous. Now I want to remind you that because of our very long lifespans, even the most monogamous of humans may see two or three long stints of monogamy in their lifespan with some mate selection in between. Because when till death do us part was invented, death was pretty imminent. Mm. All right. So 50% of men are monogamous. Let's do the math. So if a man decides to invest in one woman and the offspring that come out of that marriage, let's call it marriage, that union, he can pretty much have about one baby a year, unless you're lucky enough to have twins, right? For the most part, if you practice monogamy, your reproductive results are going to be about one baby a year. Now, let's say you're a player and you're a seed spreader and you want to go out there and mate with as many women as you can hoping that you will plant some seeds into some relatively healthy baby mamas who actually might be able to raise those kids and they might be able to reproduce themselves because it's not just about having a baby, it's about raising that baby so they're healthy enough to be able to have offspring themselves. Monogamy is real good for that. So how many women in the same year does a playboy have to mate with in order to match the odds of the monogamous man who's going to have one baby a year? Any guesses? Uh, he, he estimates once a year to have the same odds, I guess, right? Nope. If he wants to just have Remember, one women, baby. We have, we're the only species with concealed fertility. We have this tricky body, uh, us women. Yeah. So when every other primate is in heat or fertile, her vulva swells up bright red, right? Those big red monkey butts. And humans have concealed fertility. Most men can't tell when a woman is ovulating, uh, yeah. and many women can't even tell when she's ovulating. Mm -hmm. So that means 27 days of the month, he might be having a great time with her, but he's shooting blanks right? because she's not going to get pregnant. So now that you remember that fact, mm -hmm. how many women do you think he has to have sex with to make sure he gets one pregnant in each year? 13. 33. 33. It's 33 women. So remember that 27 women, he gets nothing from. Right. So those kind of odds are best left to athletes, actors, and rock stars. <laughs> 33 new women a year. And that's why monogamy exists. Now, it's all unconscious, right? But the rest of the men who aren't athletes, actors, aren't Tiger Woods, aren't out there hooking up with a million women, the rest of the men go, huh? wait a minute, I'm in here in this tribe, that alpha male over there, the guy with the Super Bowl ring, he's getting the lineup of girls at the locker room. What have I got? Oh, this sweet, nice girl that I met in high school. Maybe I'll just focus on her. Yeah, right. Maybe I can make my dream survive. So what is unconscious now? We're conscious cost-benefit survival decisions that existed in our mating past, and now they're hardwired in us. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
that all, again, just makes so much sense when you say it out loud. You know, we need to be talking to these experts more often, just understanding all this stuff. This is very, very cool. Absolutely. We don't even know we have these strategies we in we our don't. head. We don't. But so then, we're, yeah. we're, getting, we're getting to the end of the show. And before we have uh, Wendy give us some final advice, let's put something out there, which I'm sure people, some of them get, some of them don't get. But from a scientist and a doctor like you, Wendy, why do people watch porn? Oh, <laughs> I, I have an episode of Mating Matters called Pornography Mindfuck. Mm -hmm. And it actually begins with the story of a Canadian biologist who was out in the outback of Australia. And he was studying these specific kind of black beetles only found in Australia. And they were noticing that the population was declining and they couldn't figure out why. And one morning he got up and he, I think he's from... Uh, I'll have to think Queens University, maybe. Okay. And he got up and he was out walking along and he noticed a whole cluster of these males trying to mate with this brown beer bottle. <laughs> and he went up to examine it and he saw that the way the, remember those stubby short yeah, bottles yeah, and yeah, parts exactly. of the bumps on the side mm -hmm. so that your hands wouldn't slip, the beer wouldn't slip out of your hands? Mm -hmm. The little bumps on the side actually replicated a female brown beetle. Huh. And so they were wasting their sperm on these beer bottles and the population was declining. Huh. The beer bottles were being deposited by truckers driving along the road and throwing them out the windows. Oh, yay. So they contacted the company and the company actually changed the shape of their beer bottle as a result. Now your question was about pornography. Pornography is our beer bottle, right? Mm. So men are visually wired because back in our anthropological past, you were sitting there living with your old auntie and your sisters and your mother. And if you caught a sight in the bushes of a woman from another tribe, oh, you got very excited. And you were wired visually to go for that because that was different. We're also males are wired to be able to gauge how fertile a woman is by her age and the shape of her body. So the more curvy she is, the more likely she is to be fertile and not near menopause, right? So we have all these environmental cues, these visual triggers that let men know that she's in her reproductive years and she's uh, ready for him. So we've invented pornography as a kind of substitute for human mating. And what I loved this, uh, I think his name was Daryl Gwynn, the scientist. He was so funny. At the end of my podcast episode, he said, I said, so what do you think? Like, is pornography, are we going to go extinct because of it? And he goes, no, no. I'm sure there are a lot of young men who are still, instead of Saturday night sitting home and wanking off, they're calling up a woman and going out for a date. And their genes are going to stay in evolution's chain. <laughs> yeah. Because every other night they're onto the porn. But they save that one Saturday night just for real women. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And so my point is, pornography, again, evolved because we have these triggers. Is pornography an addiction? That's the next question you're going to ask me. Well, the DSM has not put pornography in the uh, manual, statistical manual of mental diagnoses. So it's not considered an addiction, even though we know that sex is a drug and love is a drug and it affects the brain in the same places that our drug addiction does. They still don't call it an addiction. They call it a compulsion. So if you are somebody who has this compulsion, what might be the long-term ramifications? And what we are seeing more often than not 
is DE, delayed ejaculation, right? So people who use a lot of pornography are having trouble climaxing. Mm -hmm. In the same way that navigation on our car has erased all the maps that used to exist in our brain, pornography starts to erase the maps of fantasy. Because in order to have long-term monogamy, you've got to fantasize. Part of great sex, sex happens in your head. It doesn't happen in your genitalia. Your brain informs your genitalia. And so in your brain, the more you can have fantasy, the better. But if you've been using technology to bring a young, fresh, nubile, strange woman over and over again, the idea of looking at the same woman over and over again without a new, strange, novel vis visual cue makes it difficult to orgasm. Now, how is, monog or how is pornography good? There's research to show that in long, remember, when monogamy, well, when, when we got together in the beginning, until death do us part was invented, death was pretty imminent. If you got married in the year 1900 and professed till death do us part, the average length of that marriage was 12 years. Wow. If wow. you got married in 1990 and you professed till death do us part, the average length of that marriage was 12 years. So we're, di we're divorcing instead of dying. But we're not really meant to have 30 or 40 year marriages. And those that are, are having to introduce novelty to their relationships. So for some couples, pornography is a helpful novelty that they use together, right? It's something that they use to help themselves feel aroused and imagine that they're out in the mating marketplace, mating with all these other people, but still staying together. Right? So it's a way that people are trying to create novelty in monogamy. However, if one partner is using it to the point where they're unable to have a healthy sex life with their partner, then you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or if young boys, we know that the average age of first time seeing pornography is around the age of 11. If young boys are accessing it during their developmental years, and they're going deeper and deeper because here's the thing about sex, as you well know, you got to keep upping the ante. You got to keep making it more exciting in some way or another. And so if by their late teenage years, they're getting into dangerous, violent, aggressive pornography, it can change their roadmap to what is normal, right? And this is dangerous for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that happens far too often because those young boys are probably using pornography as a, a tool of education. When it should just be entertainment. Right, they, they don't have a reference up till then to, right. to the know. Right, it's the worst place to get educated, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we are coming to the end of the show. This has been a fabulous, fabulous uh, knowledge-based show about everything scientific about love and attachment. I think and this is one of those shows in the last year that I've said almost nothing. I know, because we, we just love to listen <laughs> to all this I'm thing. sorry, I'm a talker. No, it's, it's, okay. wonderful. it's wonderful. It's so enlightening but and educational for us. We would love if you could just wrap up all those kinds of new uh, scientific things that you talked about new for our audience and, and give us some advice about maybe what one or two things that they could use, the couple could use from your knowledge about how they could increase their intimacy. Exactly. There's lots of research on that. So uh, before I say that, I want to remind everybody to please follow me on all social media at Dr. Wendy Walsh, at Dr. Wendy Walsh. Uh, right now, all the party seems to be over at TikTok. I just hit half a million followers over there. <laughs> so there's a, quite a thing going on, but I'm everywhere. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, etc. Um, okay. So 
we do know that in order to maintain exciting long-term monogamy, you have to create novelty. Now, that novelty doesn't have to mean that you're swinging from chandeliers in a French maid's costume. Um, it can simply mean changing the time of day. It can simply mean changing the room. You know, if you have a six-month-old baby, you never have to buy new toys. You just move the toys to a different room, and suddenly they're a different schema for the child, and the child thinks they're a whole new toy. So if you move your partner to a different room, they will look like a whole new toy to you, right. okay? Right. Um, so I do want to say this because um, sexual desire tends to decline more in women as they hit menopause than it does in, in men, and women will often blame their hormones. But what we know is that hormones interact with environment, right? So they suddenly go through their divorce and they've had this low desire for years, and then all of a sudden they're meeting all these great guys and all of a sudden everything's amped up again. They're like, oh, maybe it wasn't the hormones. <laughs> maybe it was the environment. So gentlemen, here's what women need. Women need space and time to become aroused. If you are a microwave oven, we are a crock pot. If a woman is in the home with children, she often has her own internalized whore Madonna syndrome. And it's very hard for her to act like your sexy hot whore if she's been cleaning up poop and changing diapers and mopping floors all day. She's busy being a Madonna, all right? So how do you change that in her brain? You give her the space. So scheduling sex as unsexy as it sounds, is the most important thing you can do in long-term monogamy. So if she knows it's coming on Saturday night, she can start on Wednesday thinking about it. She can think about what sheets need to be on the bed. And gentlemen, that room better be clean. I'm sorry. If we're thinking about folding your laundry while you're trying to make love to us, we can't get our minds off that, okay? So clean the room for us. Make sure childcare is taken care of. Buy a beautiful scented candle. Buy her some lingerie. Give her a few hours without the kids to take a long bath and shave herself and let herself remind herself of who she was when she was your sexual creature, right? So women need time to do that. But if you're begging and pestering, nothing is less arousing to women than a husband going, eh, you know, you never give it to me. You're frigid. What's wrong with you? You always fall asleep. You always have a headache. I'm sorry, dude, that does not turn me on. Right. All right. But if instead he says, babe, you still got it. It's so hard for me to contain myself. Do you hear the difference? Mm -hmm. One is you don't give to me. And the other is what can I give to you? Mm -hmm. Because I got something for you because you are so hot. <laughs> or I love you because you are the best mother you take care of this house so well. Now, I'm putting gender roles on this. She may be at the office. You're a lawyer who kills it during the day. But at night, I want you to come home and I'm going to dominate you so you don't have to do anything. You'd be my bottom tonight, right? So think about the time she needs and what arouses her. But begging and whining never works. No. Wow, that is really, really good. Great advice for new intimacy, that new uh, ideas to bring environment and uh, arousal into the whole picture, which is awesome. And thank you so much for telling us a little bit about uh, how to reach out to you online. That's great. And I just want everyone to know that if you've missed any of that information, you can always go to our website, thesexylifestyle.com, where every one of our guests will have their own guest page with all their information. You can even contact them right then and there. Absolutely. And as we did today, you know, we're learning more and more every week from all our expert guests. We hope you do too. If you have any questions at all, you can always send us an email at ask at carolandavid.com. Alrighty. I'd like to say, wow, that's the end of another great show, but this is probably one of the best shows we've had this year. Aww. 
with <laughs> with a spectacular, amazing guest, Dr. Wendy Walsh. Thank you so much for being here today. And should we disclose that although I've lived in America for a very long time, I'm actually Canadian. Yay! Yay go Canada, go! I'm, I'm dual. I'm dual, baby. Love it. And when we come out to California in the winter, maybe we'll have coffee together. Exactly. I always say the best Americans started out as Canadians. Hell yeah. <laughs> that is so much fun. Absolutely. And of course, we want to thank all our listeners for being there week in and week out. And you can join us again next time for another hour of The Sexy Lifestyle, talking about sex, sexuality, sexual health and pleasure, and all the fun ways to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy and always horny. Well, that's it for our show today. Carol and I send you lots of love and great sex. Please stay safe. And of course, stay sexy, everyone. Until next time. Thank you for joining Carol and David for this week's edition of The Sexy Lifestyle. We've got another one lined up next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is just around the corner, so try something new, spice it up, and you just might have the best sex ever.